Hello, this is Nick Whitney, and welcome to the first episode of All You Need to Know About European History. Since this series is intended as a sort of extended explainer, I shall mainly be doing the obvious thing and tracking developments from Charlemagne to the First World War in chronological order. But I've indulged myself for this first episode, entitled The Hinge of History, by jumping straight in at the middle. Our scene is set in Spain, and the year is 1492. 1492 opened with Ferdinand of Aragon and Isabella of Castile, the royal couple whose marriage had united their country, camped outside the walls of Granada. They were about to close out a chapter of European history that had lasted almost 800 years. The story of the Moorish presence in Iberia. Islam was born in the deserts of Arabia in the 7th century AD. It spread like wildfire across the Middle East and North Africa, driven on by religious fervour and the sword, and fuelled by the decrepitude of the power structures that stood in its way. By the end of the century, the warriors of the new faith had reached the Atlantic. At this point, one of the Germanic tribes who had washed into Iberia after the fall of the Roman Empire thought it would be a smart idea to invite a Moorish force across the narrow strait from Morocco to lend them a hand in a local war. Talk about reaping a whirlwind. The Moors entered Spain in 711, their leader Tariq lending his name to the prominent rock dominating the straits, so that's Jabal Tariq, and ignoring their host's expectations, surged north through Iberia with unstoppable momentum. Within a dozen years, the Moors had conquered the entire peninsula, excepting some mountainous bits to the north and west, and were over the Pyrenees. Still, they rode on, and were halfway up France to Tours, when, in 732, they were finally checked by a Frankish army under Charles Martel, the Hammer. Some retrenchment and consolidation was called for, which turned out to mean hasty retreat from France, and then... Moorish control of the productive bulk of the Iberian Peninsula, leaving the mountainous bits to a scattering of Christian princes. The dominant story of succeeding centuries is that of the Reconquista, the intermittent process by which Portugal freed itself and Christian Spain slowly pushed back south. It is to this era that the story of El Cid, from the Arabic Al Said or the Boss, belongs a Christian freebooter who supposedly saved Valencia from the Moors in his final battle, albeit taking part posthumously, his corpse strapped upright to his saddlebow to encourage the troops. As Christian Spain gradually expanded south, so it consolidated into the two great kingdoms of Castile, centre and north, and Aragon, uh, roughly Catalonia in the Mediterranean coast, eventually united by the marriage of Ferdinand and Isabella. Conversely, Moorish control contracted, until by Christmas 1491, their last remaining stronghold, Granada in Andalusia, was within days of surrender. Medieval courts were necessarily peripatetic. Henry II of England, for example, the great 13th century Plantagenet monarch, at one point spent two years without setting foot in England, attending to the affairs of his French domains. These Travelling courts were geared to conducting affairs of state from wherever campaigns or politics required the monarch's presence, 
and to dealing with a constant flow of ambassadors, lobbyists, and people wanting things. One such person to show up at the court outside Granada in the last days of 1491 was a Genoese adventurer called Christopher Columbus, pushing his Enterprise of the Indies scheme. The proposal to pioneer a westabout sea route to China and the Indies. This was not a novel idea. Columbus had spent a decade peddling the scheme, first in Lisbon and then to Ferdinand and Isabella themselves at an earlier audience in Cordoba. These two pictures had each been referred to a commission of experts, but both Portuguese and Spanish commissioners concluded that the scheme was not investable. The concept, a direct trade route to the fabled Orient with its wealth of precious stones, silks and spices, cutting out the Arab and Venetian middlemen, was clearly seductive. Columbus himself was bankable enough, a bit monomaniacal, but he had a reasonable track record knocking around the eastern Atlantic. And after all, it was the Genoese who had discovered the Canaries a couple of hundred years earlier. Nor was anyone concerned with those primitive fears about falling off the edge of a flat earth. The ancient geographers, such as Ptolemy of Alexandria, had established that the earth was round, and their learning had been brought to Spain, along with so much else of the classical, scientific and philosophical heritage, by the Moors. Moreover, such ventures as the Portuguese settlement of Madeira and the Azores, and the exploration of the West African coast, had buttressed theory with practical experience, as well as building navigational confidence and competence. No, the problem that damned the enterprise of the Indies in the eyes of both the Portuguese and the Spanish savants was simply that Columbus had got his sums wrong. The distance was too great. For the ancients had not only proved that the Earth was a sphere, but had even calculated its size, and combining this with the best estimates available from travellers' accounts of how far eastwards Asia extended, expert opinion judged the sea space in front of Columbus to be 10,000 nautical miles or more. No ship of the day could accomplish such a passage before its crew would be dead of thirst and starvation. Columbus chose to make other calculations, alternative calculations, one might say. He drew on the Bible to assert that only one part in seven of the globe's surface was water. Perhaps more persuasively, he cited the eminent Florentine geographer Toscanelli, whose map had a much larger Asia and a much narrower ocean. He quoted Marco Polo, who placed Japan as much as 1,500 miles off the east coast of China. He was wholly convinced that the crossing was doable. So, when on 12 October 1492 the lookout on the Pinta sighted land in just about the right place, Columbus was delighted but not surprised. Despite three further transatlantic expeditions, he went to his grave believing that he had explored the eastern fringes of Asia. The Portuguese should have been reluctant investors in Columbus's scheme was understandable. They were, after all, notching up steady successes in their quest to open a sea route to the Indies round the bottom of Africa, a project initiated earlier in the century by Prince Henry the Navigator. As recently as the winter of 1487-8, to 8, 
Bartolomeo Diaz had finally got round the Cape of Storms, which his monarch smartly rechristened Good Hope, into the Indian Ocean, and preparations were set in hand for the follow-up expedition under Vasco da Gama, which would duly arrive in the famous Emporium of Calicut on India's southwest coast in 1498. In Lisbon, Columbus's project was an idea whose time had passed. What was it then that prompted Ferdinand and Isabella finally to give way to Columbus's importuning when he again presented himself and his project at Granada? Perhaps religious enthusiasm, heightened by the imminence of their final triumph over the Moors in Spain, inspired them to back a venture that could further expand the reach of Christendom. After all, the Pope himself had styled the royal pair the Catholic monarchs, in recognition of their crusading zeal. Perhaps the burden of campaign costs disposed Ferdinand and Isabella to take a punt. Perhaps they just wanted Columbus off their backs. In significant part, however, they must have been worried by the materialising prospect of being shut out of a whole new world of discovery and trade by Portugal's Easterbout successes. They now wanted Columbus for the same reason that the Portuguese did not. Granada surrendered on the 2nd of January 1492. Tradition has it that within days Columbus departed, with no deal concluded, only to be summoned back by messenger and told that he would get the support and the generous perks in relation to any newly discovered territories he had demanded. His three-ship flotilla set sail from Palos near Cadiz on the 2nd of August, and staged through the Canaries before running before the prevailing easterlies into the unknown. The rest is history. It certainly was for the Native Americans. The last governor of Granada, Abu Abdullah, Boabdil to the Spaniards, had negotiated his own safe passage to the coast. He is said to have taken a last backward look at Granada and wept. No wonder. The place had been, for a desert people, an earthly paradise, with its gardens and shady courts and ever-flowing fountains and rivulets fed from the snowmelt on the Sierra Nevada. And the Alhambra Palace remains one of the most gorgeous creations of humankind, a glorious testament in its architecture and decoration to the cultural fusion of Islamic Spain. For there is no doubt who, in the long centuries of conflict and coexistence between Christian North and Moorish South, was educating whom, particularly among the Egyptian remnants of Alexander the Great's empire, the Arabs had found, preserved and absorbed the learning of the Hellenistic world, and had translated its output into their own language. After its reconquest in 1085, Toledo in central Spain became the critical point of exchange where schools of translators put the Arabic into Latin. In this way, a vast intellectual endowment Ptolemy, Aristotle, medicine, astronomy, botany, philosophy much of it enriched by the further discoveries and refinements of Arab scholars flowed into Europe and fueled a rebirth of the Western mind. So it was tragic that the Catholic monarchs chose to celebrate their completion of the Reconquista 
by expelling from their lands every Jew who would not convert to Christianity, probably some 100,000, certainly the largest mass displacement of Jewish people since the great diaspora from Judea in Roman times. Many found refuge in Portugal, until five years later the Portuguese followed suit and exiled them again. Scattered mainly around the Mediterranean world, with a warmer welcome in Islamic North Africa and the Ottoman Empire than in the Christian North, this new diaspora came to embody the Sephardic Jewish tradition. Muslims got off more lightly to begin with, but the Catholic monarchs had already successfully petitioned the Pope for permission to set up their own Spanish branch of the Inquisition under the Dominican friar Tomás de Torquemada, personal confessor and advisor to Queen Isabella. The Grand Inquisitor was not the sort of man to turn a blind eye to Muslims pretending to convert without really meaning it. And so began the inevitable cycle of interrogations, expropriations, expulsions and executions, followed by periodic revolts, followed by reprisals and ever more rigorous imposition of Christian orthodoxy. The death of tolerance and multiculturalism in Spain was a tragedy for civilization. It didn't do Spain much good either. Throughout human history, closed minds and fanaticism have been the enemies of interchange and innovation, without which societies and states will ossify. The prodigious wealth, soon flowing into Spain from its new world conquests, masked the effects of this sclerosis. But in little more than a hundred years, the Catholic monarch's great-grandson, Philip II, he of the ill-fated Armada expedition against England, broke Spain's power for good in wars against the Protestants of Northern Europe. Happily for civilization. Interchange with the East was not reliant solely on Iberia. In 1492, the Renaissance was in full flower in Italy, with a succession of popes who seemed determined to take the virtues of tolerance and open-mindedness and test them to destruction. Spiritual leadership was abandoned in favour of pursuit of temporal wealth and power, with personal gratification and the establishment of family dynasties, as complementary goals. The most spectacular of these was the Spaniard Rodrigo Borgia, who became Pope Alexander VI in 1492, and celebrated his election with bullfights in front of St Peter's. Alexander was scarcely the only churchman of his day to ignore his vows of celibacy, but few deployed their offspring so conspicuously. Alexander placed the eldest, Giovanni, in charge of the army of the Papal States, made the second, Cesare, a cardinal, and used his celebrated daughter, Lucrezia, as a dynastic asset, marrying her first to a Schwarzer of Milan, and subsequently, after annulling that marriage, to the crown prince in Naples. In keeping with the colour of the age, the Schwarzers were known as the Vipers of Milan, their arms featuring a viper swallowing a child, can be seen on the Alfa Romeo car badge to this day. None of Alexander's children were low-profile, with Lucrezia, allegedly an adept at the poisoner's arts, said to enjoy an incestuous relationship with Cesare, and Giovanni showing up dead from multiple stab wounds in the Tiber, seemingly at his brother's hand. 
Alexander himself contributed to the family reputation by complimenting the mother of his children with a 19-year-old mistress, Giulia la Bella Farnese, drawn from one of Rome's oldest families. The magnificence, extravagance and general amorality of Vatican life under the Borgias was epitomised by one particularly memorable, competitive orgy, remembered as the belly of the chestnuts. Best not to ask. In the grand sweep of history, the Borgias may be more entertaining than significant, but they made their own non-negligible contribution to the progressive discrediting of the Church of Rome, which would lead, only 14 years after Alexander's death in 1503, to Martin Luther's Protestant Revolution. Indeed, the Church's crisis was palpable even during Alexander's papacy, just up the road in Florence. The trouble began, uh, of course, in 1492, with the death of Lorenzo de' Medici, Lorenzo the Magnificent. He was the fourth generation of the banking family to run Florence, nominally a republic, from behind the scenes. Think the first Roman Emperor Augustus, or Yaroslav Kaczynski in today's Poland. Under Medici rule, Florence had become the epicentre of the Renaissance. Among those Lorenzo sponsored were Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci and Botticelli. Lorenzo's son and successor was, however, useless, and his collaboration with a passing French invasion especially riled the Florentine citizenry. So in 1494, Florence fell under the spell of the Dominican friar Savonarola, hellfire preacher and scourge of corrupt elites. Bolstering mass hysteria with mobs of juvenile enforcers, he presided over the bonfire of the Vanities. Vanities being pretty much anything of monetary or artistic value, and bonfire being, well, an enormous pyre, to which Botticelli contributed some of his own canvases. Savonarola did not last long. He was burned at the stake for heresy in 1498, long enough to do incalculable cultural damage and to inspire the sense that it was past time to put a torch to the established order, and especially the rotten edifice of the church. The discovery of the New World, the expulsion of the Moors and the Sephardim from Spain, the enthronement of a Borgia probe. This might seem to be enough excitement for one year. Yet two other developments of determinant importance to Europe's next 500 years are also associated with 1492. For the first, we turn to the eastern extremity of Europe, to the plains of Muscovy, where Ivan the Great was putting the finishing touches to the great circle of walls that surrounds the Kremlin to this day. Moscow was a relatively new settlement. When, in the 10th and 11th centuries, the Vikings first pushed into the lands east of the Baltic, raiding and trading up the river systems, the first strong point they established was Novgorod, halfway between the future St. Petersburg and Moscow. Never sedentary folk, they were soon on to the Volga and Dnieper rivers, and thus down into the Caspian and Black Seas. Here they encountered the Byzantine Empire, and they were mutually impressed. The emperor recruited a cadre of Vikings for his personal Varangian bodyguard. The Vikings adopted Orthodox Christianity. Up north, there were furs to trade in abundance, and swamps which merged into tundra and winds straight from Siberia. 
Down south there was gold and wine and spices and silks from the Abbasid Baghdad of the Thousand and One Nights. So it is not astonishing that the first Viking Slav state should have taken shape in the relatively milder climes of today's Ukraine. They called themselves the Rus people, a name which has endured. Around the turn of the millennium, Vladimir the Great was entertaining the envoys of the great religions in Kiev. Rejecting Judaism, Catholicism and Islam, he pointed out to the Muslim envoys urging abstinence that drinking is the joy of the Rus. He then baptised his people into the Orthodox faith in the river Dnieper. So, Novgorod and Kiev were the first East Slavic power centres for the next couple of hundred years, with Moscow little more than a trading entrepot. Still wood-built when, in 1240, the Mongols swept through and burned it to the ground. At the same time, the Mongols raised Kiev, by then reputed to be one of the largest cities in the world, to such good effect that Kiev virtually disappears from history until the 19th century. Novgorod survived. It seems that even the Mongols drew the line at the swamps and the tundra and the winds, but suffered instead from the crusading-slash-marauding attentions of the Teutonic Knights coming from the West. The great Soviet film director and propagandist Sergei Eisenstein's movie Alexander Nevsky celebrates Novgorod's victory over the invaders at the Battle of the Ice in 1242, uh, the heavily armoured knights do not fare well as the ice of Lake Pipus begins to crack beneath them. Meanwhile, the Mongols swept on to devastate Poland and Hungary, only to withdraw in 1242 as rapidly as they had come when the great Khan's death required their chiefs to return to Karakorum in Mongolia. The upshot was the break-up of the vast Mongol Empire with the exotically named Golden Horde, controlling the south-central regions of today's Russia, out of Crimea. Moscow became a vassal statelet. Until, that is, Ivan the Great got it all together, repudiating the Tatar yoke and annexing Novgorod in 1478. His ambition went far beyond the creation of a powerful Grand Duchy in Muscovy. He saw himself as building nothing less than the Third Rome, the orthodox metropolitan religious ruler of ruined Kiev had finally decamped to Moscow in the previous century, and the second Rome, Constantinople, had fallen to the Ottoman Turks in 1453. Ivan declared his intentions by marrying Sophia Paleologus, niece of the last Byzantine emperor, and adopting as the symbol of orthodox Russia the Byzantine double-headed eagle. He began to refer to himself as Tsar, the heir to the Caesars. And he built those magnificent fortifications around Moscow's citadel, the Kremlin. Russia had arrived on the world stage, just as America was being discovered. Before leaving Russia, three legacies of these early years, beyond, that is, a sense of greatness and entitlement, are worth highlighting for how they have shaped Russia's behaviour in subsequent centuries. The first is the inability of Moscow to accept that Ukraine could ever be a genuinely separate, independent country. So it is not just a Vladimir Putin thing. The second is 
the call of the south, and in particular Constantinople, capital of the second Rome, fountainhead of orthodox Christianity and gateway to the Mediterranean. It was to block such southwards expansion by Russia that Britain and France fought the Crimean War in the 19th century. The third is the atavistic Russian fear and loathing of infidels, successors to the Mongols, to the south and east. Just ask the inhabitants of Grozny or Aleppo. The inhabitants of Mariupolis, as fellow Christians, might reasonably have hoped for better. But tragically, of course, did not get it. Finally, and at the risk of overstraining your patience... I cannot finish this episode without a quick look at what was going on in Central Europe, where the Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian I was busy assembling the building blocks of the most powerful and enduring European dynasty of the next 400 years. I shall have more to say about the Holy Roman Empire in a later episode. For now, it is enough to note that this extraordinary institution embraced roughly today's Germany, Austria and Czechia, historically Bohemia, with the emperor also claiming and periodically enforcing kingship of Italy. It lasted for a thousand years, from Charlemagne's coronation by the Pope in Rome on Christmas Day 800, until Napoleon smashed it. And though it was indeed an empire under Charlemagne, for most of its existence it was more of a league, encompassing scores of feudal princes and church potentates the most powerful of whom elected the emperor. Different families tended to have runs for maybe three or four generations on the imperial throne, partly no doubt because the incumbent was well-placed to raise the huge sums in bribe money often needed to ensure the election of his son to follow him. The Habsburgs, a German family whose power base was in Vienna, had begun their own run with Maximilian's grandfather. Maximilian succeeded his own father in 1493. So far, so normal. What was transformative was that the Habsburgs would now establish an arm lock on the empire that would last for the next three centuries. They ensured this thanks to their dynastic power and wealth, largely derived from family lands, even whole kingdoms held outside the empire. And it was Maximilian who put these assets together, not by conquest but by spectacular success in that Game of Thrones which was the European dynastic marriage market. His first coup was his own marriage to the Burgundian heiress. Technically a mere duchy subordinate to Paris and ruled by a junior branch of the French Valois dynasty, Burgundy was for all practical purposes an independent power with vast landholdings stretching down the centre of Europe from the Low Countries through much of what is today eastern France and western Germany down into the Western Alps. When his wife died in a hunting accident, Maximilian claimed this inheritance, which Paris naturally disputed. After years of conflict and argument, Maximilian got to keep most of it, thus setting up a strategic rivalry between France and Austria, which would play out across succeeding centuries up and down the swathe of Maximilian's Burgundian inheritance and across northern Italy. But Maximilian was only starting. What really propelled the Habsburgs into the stratosphere were two inspired dynastic double plays. The first involved marrying his son and daughter to offspring of 
Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain. Ferdinand survived his obvious heirs in the next generation, but when he eventually died, it was to Charles, Maximilian's grandson, that the Spanish crown devolved. Meanwhile, another grandson and a granddaughter were deployed in a double marriage with the children of the King of Hungary. I shall spare you the details, but fate contrived that the male grandchild, also a Ferdinand, should succeed to the throne of Hungary, and of Bohemia too, for good measure. Thus between them, the brothers, Charles and Ferdinand, Maximilian's grandsons, would come to eclipse all other European powers. The success with which Maximilian had played the Game of Thrones was celebrated in a contemporary Latin couplet. Others wage war, but you, happy Austria, marry, for the realms that Mars gives to others are given to you by Venus. But I have now strayed into the early years of the 16th century, so let me finish this episode with the hope that this somewhat breathless survey of the most important things happening in Europe as the 15th century closed gives at least some sense of the seismic changes then underway as a new post-medieval dispensation begins to take shape, one which will, after prolonged and devastating wars of religion, emerge as modern Europe. In the next episode, proper chronological discipline will be restored and we shall go back to the start of my story as Europe emerges from the Dark Ages. I do hope you'll choose to join me then.